You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before we jump into our conversation for today, I want to highlight one thing. This week, we are actually launching an online course with Pete, a six-week live online course on Jesus and the Old Testament. So we have a, a lot of listeners who have asked us questions, and one of the questions that we often talk about is why the New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament, why do they take it out of context? Even Jesus, we see making arguments and using the Old Testament in a way that we would find odd at best. So we decided to have this six-week course. We'll have conversation, we'll have Q&A, and a lot of it will be Pete teaching on all the things that he's learned and, and maybe even asking some really good questions about what's going on in the Bible. And of course, always trying to answer that question or ask better questions around what is the Bible and what do we do with it? So if that sounds interesting to you, if you've asked those questions, you want to have those conversations, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash course. Again, this week only, we'll have open registrations. Uh, again, that's thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash course, Then you can check it out there. All right, enough of that, Pete. Let's get into our conversation. What are we going to be talking about this week? Yeah, I mean, our topic today is where did the New Testament come from? And we're doing this in part because, you know, we're just interested in these kinds of questions too. But this is, you know, we've gotten a lot of feedback from people saying, can we do something on canon? You know, and canon is that word that we use a lot that uh, it simply means an authoritative collection of scripture for the church, which is basically our Bible. And, you know, where did it come from? Did it just drop out of heaven or whatever? And our guest is uh, Dr. Craig Allert, who is at Trinity Western University, which is in Langley, British Columbia. And he wrote a book a bunch of years ago called A High View of Scripture, Biblical Authority and the Formation of the New Testament Canon. And it's just a great book. It put a lot of pieces together for me. And I've been wanting to talk with him about this sort of stuff for a while because, you know, where our Bible comes from is not as clear as we might think it is. It wasn't just sort of dropped out of heaven. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with Dr. Allert here because of, you know, we can we can talk about what the Bible is and what's in it, but often looming behind that is sort of, well, how did we decide what books are in and what books are out. And, and that's just a whole different set of questions than even what do we do with the Bible as it is now? So, it's a really good conversation. Right. Yeah. Where did it come from? Because it's messy and that right away, you know, that's why his book is called Biblical Authority and the Formation of the New Testament Canon, because that's the question that comes up for a lot of people. Like, if people were just making these decisions and they couldn't even agree and they were fighting about it for a few hundred years, what kind of a Bible do we have here? And, and I think that's, that is one of the very pertinent questions we can be asking about our Bible and our faith. Excellent. Well, let's get into our conversation with Craig. Let's do. I don't think we do any favors to anybody, and I don't think we honor God by kind of glossing over the messiness. Right? We're a particular located people, and, and the church exists in the nitty-gritty of day-to-day -day life. And we humans have to deal with that every day. And I don't think God is honored by trying to lift ourselves out of that messiness. Craig Allert, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's been, I've, I've wanted to talk with you for a long time. 
because you, you, you've done a lot of work and a very interesting topic, and we finally get a chance now, even though you're in Canada someplace. Yes, I'm outside of Vancouver. Way out there. Well, Craig, as we get started here, and we're going to be talking about how we decide on the books of the New Testament, but before we get there, maybe just share a little bit of your background and how you became interested in questions of, you know, where did the New Testament come from and how did we get these books that we have now? Yeah, sure. So, uh, as Pete said, I'm in Canada now. I'm very close to where I was born. I'm just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia. And I'm very thankful to have been raised in a good conservative Christian home. I actually thank God for that every day. In church, at camp, and later in my undergrad education, I was always taught the centrality of the Bible for Christian faith and for life. And always accompanying that affirmation was an understanding of sola scriptura. And that affirmation went something like this. The Bible and the Bible alone is the only resource, along with the Holy Spirit, of course, that the Christian needs for faith and life. This was so foundational in the Christian circles I ran in that it was almost seen as self-evident that this is what the Bible itself taught and really what historic Christian orthodoxy had always taught as well. So it was in that basic frame of mind, I guess, that I began to read the earliest Christian theologians of the church, the the people we call the church fathers. And as I read, I started to notice something that was really strange. They often referred to books with titles as strange as the Shepherd of Hermas, or the Epistle of Barnabas, or the First Epistle of Clement, or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, and a few others, but they would refer to these books as Scripture, and they would use that word, Scripture. So, for example, the great 4th century theologian Athanasius of Alexandria, he would quote the Shepherd of Hermas with the introduction, as Scripture says, and then he would quote from that book. And the more I read these early Christian theologians, the more I saw other early Christian theologians doing the same thing. And this caused a bit of a crisis in me, and I started to wonder how this could be. I was taught that historic Christian orthodoxy had always taught that the Bible and the Bible alone is all we need for faith and life. And if that was true, why were these important and committed Christian leaders from our own history referring to these strange books like Shepherd of Hermas as Scripture. These books were not in my Bible. So this really sparked in me a desire to figure out what was going on with that. I knew that these early Christian theologians and church leaders forged some real foundational theological themes, like the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, and these were forged during the early centuries of Christianity. But I couldn't get over the anomaly, really, that that they were referring to these kinds of books as Scripture, and I wanted to know why. I was taught that they thought really the same thing as I did, that the Bible had been there all the time, and it was all we need. So, as I continued to read the Fathers, I started to supplement them with books specifically to do with how we actually got our Bible, and more specifically, how we got our New Testaments. 
And I started to learn that our 27-book New Testament was not a particularly early feature of Christianity. Needless to say, I was intrigued enough to make a committed study of this, which ultimately resulted in the book that was published in 2007. So that's how I got into canon study. Yeah, so it was sort of just noticing things and sensing a disconnect, I guess, between what you had always sort of thought, maybe been taught, right, about that's these right. books, and, and, and that sort of sent you on a little journey that maybe wasn't the most comfortable thing in the world at, the, at first, right? No, it, it really wasn't. When, when you start to learn that um, what you were taught as almost a rock-solid truth was not the way you're seeing things in the reading you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's disconcerting. Yeah. So we're okay. Let, there's so many things coming out of what you're just saying here. You use the word scripture. Athanasius is referring to books that aren't part of what we call scripture, referring to them as scripture. So did they think these books had like equal authority to something like Romans, or what does that word even mean? Because usually when we say the word scripture, we assume this is part of the authoritative collection of books. Yes, exactly. I'm not sure if they meant that. Yeah, they, they, historically speaking, they did not mean that. And, and that was really the first thing that really caught my attention. And I, I started to learn that when people like Athanasius, when these early Christian theologians referred to Scripture and then cited something like the Shepherd of Hermas or the Epistle of Barnabas, they were not saying as the Bible says. So for them, using the word scripture meant religiously authoritative literature. Hmm. So for them, this was literature that was Christian, and it was functioning in the church in an authoritative manner. So you could say in the early church, there was this body of literature called scripture that early Christians drew on for their faith and life. And it wasn't till really the fourth century, and really the latter part of the fourth century, that this term canon, which means in reference to literature, canon means a closed or limited list or group of writings. It's not until the fourth century that that word starts to be used by Christians to refer to a closed kind of Bible. So, and that was, that was a narrowing it was a narrowing of a, a larger body of literature. So, walk through that a little bit. So, what I'm hearing you say is early on, from you know, the earliest that we can imagine, there were lots of writings, some of them Shepherd of Hermas and some others that were out and about, including some of the ones that eventually ended up in our New Testament today. And then there was this narrowing process that happened. There was a decision-making process to kind of winnow out certain books and not others. So, what was the, like, why the change? Why, what was going on that led to that? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough thing to pinpoint because, you know, from our perspective, we want to see this list of reasons why this book is in our Bibles or in our New Testaments and why this book is not in our New Testaments. And unfortunately, we don't have that kind of thing. So, what a historian of how we got our New Testament has to do is read these early 
church leaders and read about how these separate documents function in the actual life of the church. So to speak of an explicit decision as to why this is in and why this is out, you can't really find that. But what you find is lists that appear that kind of describe the way things are without any real explanation of why this is in and why that is out. Now, you can say that Scripture, right? We talked about Scripture, that being authoritative, religiously authoritative literature. Scripture was always functioning in the church. But there was no concerted, explicit effort to limit that scripture to a 27-book grouping until the 4th century and beyond. So what this says to me is that there were other things in the life of the church that were functioning to allow Christianity to function in a way that respected right thinking or orthodoxy. So in other words, Scripture was functioning authoritatively, but there were other things that worked alongside Scripture to enable it to function in the life of the church. What would be some examples of those things that allowed, because I think that's a frightening idea for us today, um, for, for some of our listeners, it would be scary to think of that way. So, what would be some of those things? Yeah, and I, and I can I can relate to that. You know, when you, when you make this realization that oh, you know, what if there were other things that were functioning that way? Or another way of putting it is, okay, if we don't have our New Testament until say the fourth century, what does a Bible believing Christian do with that? And there are a number of different things that allowed the church to function in a way that was honoring orthodoxy and especially honoring God. And one of those, one of the primary things was this, was something called the rule of faith. And the rule of faith really was a, it, it is creedal in the sense that it was a guardian of right belief. So it was really a list of essential Christian belief, a list that was employed by the church and theologians and leaders of the church to hold up as a standard against false teaching, against false teachers, against things that, that the church was wondering about, right? So in the, in the face of, say, heterodox group, unorthodox group like the Gnostics in the second century, an early Christian by the name of Irenaeus argued that the rule of faith functions to help us discern whether the Gnostics were teaching true Christianity or false Christianity. So you will have things in the rule of faith like God as Father and Creator of all, the incarnation of Jesus who's God's Son, you will have the resurrection of the body. You will have similar things like that that we would all kind of affirm as essential Christian orthodoxy. And the rule of faith functioned in a way that we say the Bible functions today for us. Rule, the word rule in Latin is regula. The word rule in Greek is canon or canon. So it was functioning canonically. It was functioning as a rule or standard 
against which doctrines, false teachings, other writings were measured. And it functioned in a way to really safeguard what these Christian theologians argued was the truth and safeguard against unorthodox or heretical teachings in the church. I hear you saying that uh, basically the rule of faith kind of got phased out and books became more of that standard over a few hundred year period. And I wanted to connect it to these lists that you said appear. Do you have examples of what lists would appear? I guess church leaders would have these lists of books that they considered to be more and more authoritative. Is that an appropriate way of saying it? And they would publish these lists? Well, Jared, before I answer that question, I want to back up a step. So remind me of that question after I make a a slight correction here. You said that the rule of faith gets phased out. And I would actually say that that doesn't happen. The rule of faith doesn't phase out or get phased out only to be replaced by the Bible or the New Testament. What happens is that the New Testament, when it's ultimately closed, comes to function alongside of and with the rule of faith. Because as Irenaeus, that second century theologian I mentioned earlier, he recognized that you can call Scripture as authoritative as you want, right? You can have all sorts of names for Scripture or the Bible. You can say it's inspired. You can say it's inerrant. You know, you can speak of it in the highest terms. But it just doesn't sit there and function authoritatively. It always requires interpretation. So the way the rule of faith functioned in the early church, and I would argue still functions today, is that it provides part of that lens through which we can properly interpret Scripture properly interpret the New Testament and the Old Testament. Okay. So, the lists now, right? Yeah, that, that was, yeah, just that you, you had mentioned earlier these lists that appeared, and it seemed to be important here in the progression of how we ended up with this list of 27 and only these 27. Yeah, the interesting thing about these lists is that they don't begin to appear until the 4th century. So, There's one exception that has been a a matter of much discussion in this area of New Testament studies, New Testament canon studies. So we can talk about that a little later if we want. But the interesting thing is that these lists, as I said, don't begin to appear in the history of Christianity until the fourth century. So, you know, you're asking yourself, well, what, what in the world is going on with that? What does that mean? And to me, that says that, you know, maybe the early church did not consider the closing of a canon that important because there were other guardians of Christianity, of orthodoxy, of doctrine, that sort of thing, that were in existence before that. And I I would say that one of them is, in fact, the rule of faith. So, the first real list that we have that says explicitly these documents are canonical and they are the exact same 27 books that we have as canonical appears in the year 367 with, in Athanasius's, it's called the 39th Festal Letter. Hmm. And that, that really is the first time we have the same 27 books listed as we call New Testament And then after that, we have more lists being produced. 
And the interesting thing with that is that not all the lists agree on all the details. The core collection is, is always the same. The four Gospels, Acts, the Pauline epistles, usually including Hebrews, the Catholic epistles. But one book in particular that was on some lists and not on others was actually the book of Revelation. Gee, I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, actually, well, I can can guess, but I mean, were there reasons given for that? It was just too weird or something? Well, part of it was... There are some individuals that had an issue with the book of Revelation, especially in the Christian East, right? So if you take a line and you kind of draw a line, if you can picture a map with Italy and the boot, and then the Mediterranean, you know, with Egypt and Greece on to the east, if you draw a line kind of right straight down the Mediterranean, you've got Western Christianity and you've got Eastern Christianity. And Eastern Christianity, they had a couple writers that dealt with Revelation in a way that the majority of the church was not not completely happy with, and they tried to use it in a way that cast some dispersions on it, let's put it that way. So the book of Revelation has a rocky history in the Christian East, actually. And if I'm not mistaken, even the Eastern Orthodox liturgy to this day doesn't have a reading from the book of Revelation. I just want to make sure I get this straight, because, I mean, if, if I'm hearing you right, this is extremely interesting and maybe even important. It's not the content of the book itself as much as it was the interpretation given to it that made people say, some groups say, maybe this shouldn't be a part of our authoritative collection of books. Yeah, true. I think that's fair to say. But there's also some background stuff that can be kind of complicated, having to do with authorship, having to do with who was using the book in ways that were not necessarily acceptable, I guess you could say. Yeah. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. First, head to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only do this if you like us. If not, go ahead, ignore this message, and and make baby Jesus cry. See if we care. But secondly, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for Normal People. There you'll find ways to jump into the community, join that discussion, and offer your support at various levels. And last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks give us a lot of feedback through email, calls, and overall just help make the podcast what it is. So thanks to Matt Sutton, Martin Breithaupt, Megan Clark, Eric Hendricks, Daniel Mosberg, Danny Tanner, Dustin Balcom, Joshua Anthony, Bruce McGuire, and Sherry Jones. We couldn't do what we do without you, so thanks so much. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now back to the podcast. So, okay, I'm just, I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around some of these things. We have a rule of faith, which is not written down, right? Right. I I would say it is written down. Like, Irenaeus expresses the rule of faith in slightly different way about five or six times in one of his writings. 
And the rule of faith was a really kind of elastic thing mm-hmm. that, and by elastic, I mean that it was, it was contextual, right? So if you had a Gnostic person, a Gnostic Christian arguing against, say, the bodily resurrection, well, of course, you would take the rule of faith and emphasize that aspect of it. And then, you know, if, if someone was denying, you know, the creation of the universe, you know, if there's a different creator or something, you know, not the God of the New Testament, then, then the rule of faith would be used in that context. So it could be shaped and kind of molded to suit the context within which it was being used. As an oral, what I'm, what I'm after is it's, it's an oral tradition, which can be more flexible maybe sometimes then when you write things down. So, the, the, that rule of faith then is a way of safeguarding the Christian tradition at that point. It's a way of adjudicating, like, okay, this is really outside of the pale here of orthodoxy. The canon is, it comes alongside of that, and it took a long time, I guess, for Christians to, dis, to, to come to an agreement but even they did, they still never really came to an agreement, did they? In terms of because the, there are different lists. I mean, no, you're right. And even the word agreement is is a little bit. It doesn't really get across. I mean, agreement tends to give us an image of there was this these debates, right? And there was these discussions and meetings where we figure out what's in the canon, you know, and that. That's kind of that's propagated even by Dan Brown in his Da Vinci Code, right? Yeah. Where he says at the Council of Nicaea, Constantine decided, and the, and the Council decided. Well, that never happened. That's pure fiction. And really, one of the determining factors and on why we have our present New Testament twenty-seven book New Testament is because these were the documents that were used and used with profit in the churches. That really is what it comes down to. Huh. The, the use of the... Yeah, they, they work, and they work well. Yeah. And they were discerned, right? It's not like, well, let's just use this. They were run through a gamut. The, the rule of faith was applied to them. Do they support the rule of faith? Do they support what we're teaching in our baptismal classes? Right. Those sorts of things. So they they functioned in the church to make the users wise unto salvation. Right. right. So I guess I mean you use the word discernment, and in my opinion, I think we're getting at a very important issue here that the, the what eventually became the canon, the New Testament canon, those twenty seven books, was a process of discernment over generations, centuries even, and not drop down out of heaven. I know that sounds like a rather crass way of putting it, but I, I mean, I know, you know, at least, you know, in, in my Christian upbringing and the circles that I've moved in, that's sort of the assumption that it's just, you know, God handed us these books. Yeah, there might be a couple of processes. It's a little complicated, but you're saying that it's it's not that simple. There's actually a process of discernment and discussion, maybe debate, and, you know, eventually we have these 27 books. Yeah, you're right. That dropped out of the sky mentality is pretty common in the circles that I run. It's also been explained to me in a way that I call a, a kind of binder mentality. 
And what I mean by that, if you, if you can picture a binder with the three rings open, and it's often expressed by actually a lot of writers in the conservative tradition that as soon as a book was written by the author, it was received and even forced on the church. The church took that and kind of put it in this binder, and then the next one was produced, put in the binder, the next one, the next one, until finally the book of Revelation is done. It's put in the binder, the rings are snapped shut, and it's done. And it's explained that these forced their way on the church. There was no kind of discernment, no deliberation, nothing like that. This is what God wanted written, and therefore that's what God, you know, he shut the binders. So, so almost from the time of production. Right. Yeah. Right. And when you start to read the history of the church and how the church functioned and how the church discerned and how she made decisions that were, uh, you know, were, they're trying to be God honoring. And, and you start to really realize that that explanation does not match up to the historical reality or the historical constructions that you're reading about. And it was a longer process than we have sometimes been led to believe. Mm-hmm. And during that process, I mean, again, I don't want to overstate or misstate, but it's not like they were all bent out of shape. Like, my goodness gracious, we've got to nail this canon thing down or we, we won't know what to do because they have this rule of faith and, and that's been handed down. And, and you know, we, we can be Christian without a canon. Yeah, you're right. That is, that, that's often the impression that's given that, and, and you'll read this, that the first order of Christian existence, really, we, we need to get this canon closed. We need to make sure we discern, we decide or better said, you know, we better honor God by just receiving these books and better get to the business of being church by referring to the Bible and the Bible alone, right? Mm-hmm. But the way things functioned was that the, the church had already, I mean, like you say, the church already had a canon through which she was functioning, and the literary canon, the Bible, was added to what I call the canonical tradition that existed in the church. And one part of the canonical tradition was the rule of faith. Another part of the canonical tradition is the creeds and the councils of the church. You could even talk about hymns and things, the the baptismal confessions as part of that canonical tradition. And these were all seen as functioning together in the life of the church. And that's really key here. It's the functioning of these things in the life of the church, not pulled out, set apart, and standing above, but actually functioning on the ground with the church so that the church could go about its business of spreading the gospel. And and not uh, a theoretical abstract defense of one book or another, but I mean, I'm just hearing you say so much of this is really rooted in how these books function to perpetuate, but pe- what people just knew was true, right? And 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 that's that's a very different way than I'm sure you grew up, and and many Protestants, most Protestants probably grew up to think. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing in seminary, I don't know what you heard, but the canon created the church. But by that they mean the literary canon. The literary canon created the church, and that just doesn't seem to be right. No, I, I think that's 
anachronistic. Yeah. Before there was canon, written canon, there was church. And, and I mean, it's interesting. One, one of the things you said a, a couple minutes ago, it sparked something in me. And I'm, I'm, think, I'm trying to think, you know, in, in my readings of the Church Fathers, have I ever read a defense for a particular book or a defense for the authority of the canon? And I can't recall anything like that. There, hmm. There is an accepted authority in those, and that they function authoritatively in the church. But yet there were books that were disputed, right? There were books Revelation. that were disputed. Like Revelation? Yeah. So they had to have some argument someplace. Well, the interesting thing is with that, is that when you start to read about the disputes, for example, so the church historian Eusebius, in about 324, 325, he has this division of Christian scriptures, and he talks specifically about the book of Revelation. And he says in there, basically, okay, there's this book of Revelation. Some accept it and use it in the churches, but others don't. And he was just giving the lay of the land. And it wasn't, you know, this book teaches heresy or anything like that. He was just saying, yes, some dispute it, others don't. So there's not a question really about its orthodoxy. It was a question about it functioning in the church. Hmm. That, that is such a different way of thinking about it than I think many of our listeners are used to. Yeah. It seems like it's about, I mean, part of it sounds like it's also just that when you have these other, you know, Richard Ward talked about wheels on the tricycle, or kind of you think about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, when you have these other things propping up the life of the church and tools or resources for the church to live out faithfully, it just seems like that becomes less of an important conversation, which changes the posture and the key components of the discussion. Like, it's not, like, whenever you mention Eusebius, it's almost like, oh yeah, some use it, some don't. It's not important, really. So, we move on to other more important parts of the conversation. But when you, you lose that whenever you start stripping these other pieces of the tradition away and you're only left with the Bible, then everything becomes heightened or super important. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think that answers you know, the question of why are, are some, I'll call them apologists, kind of biblicist apologists, I guess you could call them. You know, why are they so, so passionate and so unswerving on this defense of the Bible and the Bible alone? Well, I think it's because when you reach into the canonical tradition that I described earlier, and you pull one aspect of it to function alone, when it was probably never meant to function alone, then that's all you have. And if that's gone, everything else in Christianity crumbles with it. But I think in a, what I would call a more responsible historical theological approach, if you understand that these things are functioning together in the life of the church, then I, I think you have a more robust, a more trustworthy, if you want to say it that way, body within which you can call community or within you can exist as community. You are so not a Protestant. Yeah, is this thing going to be available to anybody? Yeah. Yes, uh, absolutely, especially your enemies. We'd like a list of them before we get off here. So, I mean, that's interesting, Pete, because yeah. I want Protestants to 
to understand that this is our heritage. I mean, that, that fundamentally, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Our history, yeah, as Protestants, our history may have begun in the 16th century. But you have to understand that the, the 16th century reformers, many of them, aside from the radicals, of course, they owned that tradition. They wanted to recover that heritage that they believed was lost. And that's, I, I want to do that. When I teach my undergrads, I say to them, this is your history too. This is your heritage. And I think we would be better evangelicals if we understood that heritage. And I think we would be a stronger evangelical church today if we understood that heritage and applied it. So I have a practical question off of that, or more of a, a curious question, because now, you know, given where you are and your understanding of things, and you sort of kind of identifying as a Protestant as well, what now do we do with these books like The Shepherd of Hermas, or the books that we might find in, say, a Catholic Bible, in your own practice and how you think about them now? Now that you kind of know this history, what role can they play? Do they play? How do you stack them up against the 27? Yeah, interesting question. I wouldn't say I'm I'm much different than what a typical Protestant might say. And, and a lot of the church fathers actually said this too, that the 27 we have now, and you know, I'm perfectly fine with saying we have this 27-book closed New Testament canon. No problem there. The so-called apocryphal books can help us. They can inform us. They can inform our interpretation, but they are not ultimately those defining documents of the Christian tradition, of the Christian faith. So, and that essentially is what a lot of, as I said, the early Christian fathers said too. So I, I, I do think we don't do anybody a disservice by limiting to the 27. But I want to limit that 27 within the canonical tradition, because I need help interpreting these documents, and I need help interpreting these documents within the historic Christian Orthodox tradition. And I, I want to be a faithful, and I want to be a good interpreter. And in my understanding, a faithful and good interpreter is one that is in line with that historic Christian Orthodoxy. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, one thing that strikes me in all this, Craig, is the I, I see the overlap between a complex, messy process of canonization rather than you know the 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 idea that God is overall from the top pushing buttons and superintending it. You know, whatever it means for God to superintend anything is beyond me anyway, but it's sort of like it's all working out very smoothly, there aren't any hiccups, and it's going exactly the way God wants. There's an analogy between canonization and inscripturation, the writing of these texts, and it's it gets a little bit flexible, it's a little bit messy, and I think of Jude, you know, citing books outside of the canon, it looks like First Enoch and maybe the Assumption of Moses, and it's like the history of it is indeed more complicated than what's marketed, I guess. I hate to put it in a crass way, but it's it's sort of like marketed a certain way. Now you can be sure, don't think about it anymore. You're saying that thinking about it is actually interesting, and it might even be helpful for how we understand ourselves and, and how we relate to this text. Yeah, I don't think we do any favors to anybody, and I don't think we honor God by kind of glossing over the messiness. 
right? We're particular located people, and and the church exists in the nitty-gritty of day-to-day life, and we humans have to deal with that every day. And I don't think God is honored by trying to lift ourselves out Mm -hmm. of that messiness. And there was never a time when the messiness wasn't there. Exactly. It isn't like we got this pristine beginning and then it sort of got screwed up in the 6th century or something. It's it's always been like that. Even in the apostolic age. Yep. Even in the New Testament. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, that realization was really important for me. It was really important that, you know, what does God expect of me as a human? Does he expect me to be superhuman or does he expect me to be faithful? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he expects me to be faithful. Yeah. And I guess the Bible and then the early history of the church model that for us precisely by not being perfect and smooth and flat, but being a bit bumpy. And yet there we go anyway, and it's okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, anybody who studies the history of the church in any age, including the current age, cannot miss that messiness. Yeah. Right. But you know, what do we, what do we what do we say about the providence of God, right? I mean, do we believe God is sovereign? Do we believe that, you know, by the very incarnation we know that God works through human, right? Mm-hmm. Through the human being. And I, I think that communicates something very important to us. Yeah. Well, listen, Craig, this is absolutely fascinating. I think this is such an important topic, and it's one of those things that I think especially, uh, you know, like normal people, we we don't really think about this very much because maybe we're not taught to think of how important it is. But I want to thank you for coming here and for educating us on on some of these matters, and I hope people feel you know, inspired to dig further and to sort of own this messiness and to see God somehow in that as well. So, we're coming to the end of the time, unfortunately, but where, like, like where can people find you online or any place? I mean, probably at your school's website, but any place else? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a blog or a website or anything like that. Do they have that in Canada? Do they have? Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, it's sunny here, though, not snowy there. I know right? it's snowing here. <laughs> All right, touche. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but um, my, my contact information is on www.twu.ca. So that's Trinity Western University, where I'm employed as a prof. I do have a new book coming out in May or June. That's with InterVarsity Press. The title of the book is Early Christian Readings of Genesis 1, Patristic Exegesis and Literal Interpretation, where I've kind of built off my love of canon studies and and moved on to ask the question, well, if this is what we have, how should we interpret it? So I'm actually very excited about this yeah. this book that should be coming out. And yeah, my heart rate just elevated because that's a very very important topic too for thinking about you know how, how we read creation narratives today vis a vis the ancient world. I mean the early church specifically. So okay, well listen, Craig, appreciate it again. Thanks so much for being with us and blessings to you. Yeah, well, thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed myself. You bet. See ya. Okay, take care. Thank you.
Well, thanks everybody again for listening to another episode of the Bible for Normal People. And thanks to our guest, Craig Allert. And to remind you again of that wonderful book that he wrote, A High View of Scripture, Biblical Authority and the Formation of the New Testament Canon that is published by Baker. And you know, what I really like about it, this is my bias coming through, but uh, his book came out a couple of years after my inspiration and incarnation came out. And I could see immediately the parallels between how he was arguing for Canon and how I was arguing for just the nature of the Bible. And so I thought it was sort of nice that these two books go together very well. And if, if you like at all inspiration and incarnation, I guarantee you're going to like a high view of scripture. And just one more plug here that we're going to be doing something new here pretty quick, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So oh, we have this, uh, this live online course coming up again. I won't belabor the point, but if you're interested, again, in learning about Jesus and the Old Testament and how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament in their own thinking about God and Jesus and how all this works, just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash course to learn more. All right. I think that's it. All right. See you, everybody. See ya.